be seated. We invite you to turn again with me in your copy of God's Word, this time to the New Testament. Our text this morning is Matthew 27. You can find this on page 834 of the Pew Bible in the rack in front of you. Uh, Matthew 27, we will be reading uh, verses 27 uh, down to 44. Uh, This is the retelling through Matthew's eyes uh, of the crucifixion itself. We have seen a couple trials. We've seen a Jewish trial. We've seen a Roman trial. Uh, Next week, uh, we will finally come to the death of Christ itself uh, in our morning sermon text. Uh, But this week, Matthew uh, slowly walks us through all that happened uh, that morning uh, around the crucifixion itself. So Matthew 27, beginning at verse 27, uh, would you follow along with me in your copy of God's Word? Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. They offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me again in prayer? Our Lord, indeed, we read here of the man of sorrows. We read of the suffering and the pain, uh, the shame that your Son and our Savior endured on our behalf. Lord, so much mockery in this text. I pray if any of us 
come this today with mockery in our heart that your Son, your Spirit, would bring us to the end of ourselves. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would cause the knees of our hearts to bow in adoration and in trust and in worship and in faith before you, before your resurrected Son this very hour. Speak, O oh Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In sports, uh, there is someone or something known as the GOAT. You've probably heard this phrase before. It's sort of a a new idea. The word GOAT is actually not an insult. It's a compliment to call someone the GOAT. G-O-A-T is an acronym. It stands for greatest of all time. So Michael Jordan is the GOAT of basketball, right? Tiger Woods is the, the GOAT of golf. It's kind of a weird way to compliment someone. But sports also has a different kind of GOAT. And this is not a compliment at all. The scapegoat. You've heard of a scapegoat when your team loses the game and your player missed the shot and you want to blame him, he becomes the scapegoat. When the coach uh, makes a bad decision and all the players after the game say, well, we would have won if the coach hadn't made that bad call, the coach is the scapegoat. The scapegoat's the one that you put all of the fault on. You mount it up and you blame that person. Everybody else sort of goes away Free, right, and clean, because it wasn't their fault. It's that guy's fault, scapegoat. We don't just do that in sports. We do that all over the place. We see this in politics. Uh, We see this in culture, right? We see this in work. We see this in church, right? It's a common thing to find someone and put all of the blame on them. But it's not, of course, invented anytime recently. The idea of a scapegoat goes all the way back to the Hebrew Old Testament. Some of you know this. It goes back in the sacrificial system, and we read in Leviticus chapter 16, something called the Day of Atonement, where atonement is made for the people of God. And there's a goat that's pulled out and prepared specifically for this day. This goat comes before the priest. The priest lays his hands on the head of the goat and symbolically prays that all of the sin of the people of God are placed on the head of that goat. The goat is then, after prayed over and placed all of the iniquities and the sin of the people, the goat bears those iniquities and leaves the camp and goes out into the wilderness, symbolically bearing away the sin and the guilt and the shame of a guilty people even uh, began to become a tradition to tie uh, some red cloth on the horns of the goat or some red string to symbolize the goat is bearing the blood, the blood guilt of sin on its head as he is cast out of the camp and into the wilderness. I want to show you this morning that Jesus is presented to us in Matthew 27 as a scapegoat as one upon whose head is placed the guilt of us all. The one who bears upon himself the weight of condemnation for his people, and he bears it out of the camp and into the wilderness. He is mocked in these verses. He's mocked for the very thing he's come to do. And he is, he is called out as if he should have saved himself on the cross. Like, this is an insult. If you were really God, you would have saved yourself. Jesus, of course, doesn't choose on this fateful day to save himself. 
Rather, he saves us. And the way in which he saves us is by bearing the full weight of our sin. What I want you to see in these verses is instead of saving himself, Jesus saved us by bearing the full weight of our sin, by putting on his own head the weight of the sin of his people and bearing it away. The way Matthew shows us this is through different scenes, different images, different pictures. And I want you to see three weights. What does Jesus bear? Three particular weights he bears on our behalf. Number one is the crown of thorns. Verses 27 to 31. The first weight that he bears is the crown of thorns. It doesn't have much of a physical weight. But there's a whole lot of spiritual weight behind this crown of thorns. Look back with me uh, at our context. We need to go back a verse to see how last week ended when Pilate washed his hands, innocent of the blood of Jesus. He releases Barabbas, and Matthew tells us in verse 26, having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Scourging is a form of punishment, is brutal whipping in which Jesus would have suffered greatly and probably lost a lot of blood. It is in this weakened, bruised, painful state that he is turned over to battle-hardened Roman soldiers who are experts in their craft. Verse 27 picks up. The soldiers are there in the governor's headquarters. This is Pilate's headquarters. There's a lot of them. There's a whole battalion. Now, if Matthew means that literally, that means there's about 600 of them. 600 of them crowded around a weakened, pain-filled Jesus. And as they surround him, they begin to mock him. And their mockery is specifically because of his claim to be a king. Because no king would be surrounded and treated like this. So the mockery begins. They first mock him symbolically. Verse 28, they strip him and they put a scarlet robe on him. Probably one of the robes that the the soldiers would have been wearing. They put one of the robes on him because kings wear royal robes. And so their mockery is to put a sort of fake royal robe on Jesus. Secondly, they they twist together uh, some branches of thorns in order to form a crown. They put it on his head and they press it down. This crown of thorns is supposed to replicate uh, the crown that the Caesars, the Roman kings would wear, except instead of being glorious, it's painful. Instead of being filled with uh, jewels or a garland, right, a a wreath of sort of beautiful leaves, it is filled with painful thorns. Thirdly, they put a reed in his hand. What is a king supposed to hold in his hand? He holds a royal scepter. The scepter is a symbol of the king's authority and his power and his strength. It's by which he makes his commands. Instead of that, he's given a pathetic, feeble, weak, little reed. He's dressed up like a pretend and pathetic king. His mockery is is symbolized and it's verbalized as they cry out, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, in case you didn't realize, this was sarcastic. Matthew tells us uh, they mocked him. 
This is the same language they would have used to speak of Caesar. Instead, they take that language of adoration, of borderline worship, they apply it to Jesus in mockery. With all of the sarcastic venom they can inject in their voice, hail King of the Jews. You can almost see their smiling, mocking faces turn hard in verse 30 when they spit on him and they take the reed and they strike him on the head. Here is their mockery brutalized. It's not enough for his spirit to be mocked. They now return to attacking his body and his flesh. They see before them a weak and failed man who claims to be royal, but he's not. Who claims to be king of the Jews, and yet everyone who is supposed to follow him has left him. Who claims to exercise the authority of his kingship, and yet is here at their mercy in a weak and beaten down state. And they see a pretend king. Now what do we see? when we look at this picture with eyes of faith. We see a king who, in the words of Paul, has emptied himself, who has taken on the form of a servant, who, with a word, could call down legions of angels and thwart these 600 mocking faces, but instead has chosen the path of humility and humiliation who instead empties himself, or as the Christmas hymn uh, says, mild he lays his glory by. He exchanges the royal robe and the glorious crown and the all-powerful scepter for a manger. The king has come in the form of a servant. He has come in weakness. He has come as one who is mild and gentle and lowly. One preacher looks at these verses and he says, the scorn of the soldiers is our call to worship. The very thing they see to mock him by is the thing that we see about Jesus to worship him by. This is the act of God's Son and our King to allow himself to endure this mockery and this degradation and this pain for this time. That is the work of Christ as king. That's the phrase. That's the idea that Paul uses. He empties himself. And Paul goes on to describe after his death, what happens after he empties himself and he endures death and burial. He is raised again. And Paul reminds us that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The same knees of those 600 men who bow in mockery before Jesus will one day bow the knee before the King crowned in glory, the King robed in righteousness, the King of justice whose scepter will never leave his hand. Their scorn is our call to worship. He lays his glory by. He takes to himself the crown of thorns, the weight 
that he bears for his people. Our scapegoat is placed upon his head, first the crown of thorns. When the soldiers are done with him, they're still not done with him. And they pass him off, uh, and they put upon him a second weight. This is the cross of shame. This time it is a physical weight. He does have to bear the cross beam of his own device of crucifixion. But the weight of that cross is not just physical. There's a weight of shame that he bears with the cross. Now as we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all tell us different things about this final day with Jesus. They all highlight different things. I want you to think for a moment about what Matthew is highlighting. Matthew is showing us a lot of the rough parts of this scene. He doesn't leave much out. Uh, He is emphasizing somewhat of the the, the gruesomeness, the painfulness, the the horror of it all. But he he doesn't really zoom in nonstop uh, on everything in this scene. You know how some of you watch horror movies, right? Uh, And you sort of kind of look away, right, at the scary parts. Or you kind of like put your hands before your face and you kind of peek through. Or or maybe there's something scary on the scene and so you kind of look at the bottom corner so you don't have to see the the scary thing, right? You sort of, it's something horrendous, but you can't sort of bear to watch it all. There's a little bit of that going on with Matthew. I'm going to show you in a second that he spends almost no time on the crucifixion itself. It's almost like he's looking all around at something that's a little bit less gruesome or horrendous that he can show us to press upon us just how bad those few hours were. What does he show us sort of through fingers as he looks at this horror scene? Well, first he shows us a man named Simon, verse 32. As they went out, now went out is out of the walled city of Jerusalem. So what's taken place so far has been within Jerusalem. He is led out now to a place outside of Jerusalem, outside of the camp. And presumably, he has been led away carrying the crossbeam of his own cross. But at this point, when they've gotten to the door, the gate, excuse me, to leave Jerusalem, the weight is just too much physically. Seems to be that reading between the lines. So we need to get somebody else to carry it for him. And Simon is sort of wrong place, wrong time. He carries the cross for Jesus. Uh, He carries it to a place called Golgotha. If you didn't even know how that was translated, just the word itself uh, is pretty dark, right? It's kind of a scary word. Uh, It is translated place of the skull, an ominous uh, location for Jesus to be led to. He gets there and a trick is played on him. These soldiers are merciless. They, they, They play another trick on him. It's a trick that some of you kids might have played on your brother or sister. All right? You know how you get juice boxes to drink out of, or Capri Suns? You kids know what I'm talking about, right? And you drink it, and you just, you're so thirsty, you suck it out, and you crunch the box, and then you just have fun, you kind of blow it back up, right? Now you've got an empty juice box. What are you going to do with that? You're going to give it to your little sister, right? <laughs> At least that's what I did when I was a kid, right? Oh, you're thirsty? Here, have some juice. I know you all have done it. You all are laughing like I'm the only one. Uh, That's what happens here. Jesus is thirsty. It's an exhausting day. He's been up all night. He's been scourged. He's been mocked. He's been beaten. He's carried his cross. And now he just wants something to drink. And so they offer him some wine. 
And he goes to drink it, and it's this sort of final trick. The wine is filled with gall. It is so bitter, he can't even drink it. This simple moment of offering someone in despair a drink, and the soldiers mock him. We actually read of this in Psalm 69. King David writes of this type of mockery. He writes, Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. If you're thirsty and the only people around offer you something bitter and sour to drink, that means, as David says in Psalm 69, you have no comforters. Here he is, Jesus, without even something simple to drink, he is without comforters. And then verse 35, look with me at this verse. Matthew says, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. You see, he gets to the crucifixion and he just flies by it. He just sort of zooms past. It's not even in the present tense, right? And he spends more time about them uh, splitting up his clothes than the crucifixion itself. It's almost that for Matthew, it's just too much. Like th- this, this final thing is just too much. He has to fly by this gruesome scene of pain and shame, and instead he focuses on sort of the corners of the scene, right? He shows this guy's dividing up his garments, gambling, right, throwing dice over who gets his clothes. Again, this is predicted for us in Psalm 22. They paint a, a sign over his head. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. They think they're mocking and insulting him. Again, they're saying only what is true. That he's come as king. And then the robbers, one on each side, he's numbered. He is numbered amongst sinners themselves. Some scholars believe that the three crosses were reserved for Barabbas and his two accomplices. And that in that last decision before Jesus is turned over and the crowd asks to release Barabbas, that Jesus gets the cross reserved for Barabbas and his two accomplices, uh, one on each side. He's treated as a robber. He's treated as a criminal. And we look at the scene, and it's a scene of physical brutality. It is a scene of, of brutally, physically painful experience. But what stands out even more in each of these is the shame of it. That these steps are designed not just for physical punishment, but for emotional and spiritual and religious punishment. They are intending to shame him. You don't even have anything to drink. His clothes are just gambled over. The hymn that we just sang has that line, bearing shame and scoffing rude. He's bearing shame. He's has shame placed upon him. Particularly, it is the shame of one who is taken outside of the city, outside of the camp. We read in Matthew 13 about those sacrifices taken outside of the city. Sorry, Hebrews 13 says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place 
by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. You burn the the dead bodies of sacrifices outside of the camp. The verse goes on, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He is taken outside of the camp. He is taken outside of the people. He is particularly placed in a place of shame that he would feel it deeply, the cross of shame. We talk often as Jesus takes our guilt. We speak of it rightly so as an exchange on the cross, the guilty for the innocent. And that our sins, we can number them, we can list them, we can put, they're put on Jesus, and he bears them, and we bear innocent. The judge declares that we are innocent, and that is incredible. But there is also a teaching in Scripture that Jesus deals not only with our guilt, but with our shame. Guilt and shame are, and they're siblings, they're maybe twins, not identical twins, they're very similar. Guilt is something that we have done, right? We did something wrong, we are guilty. Shame is something that we are. Guilt is easier to move past. Shame can be something that can plague us. Shame is sort of the weight of our sinful acts and decisions say something about us that is inherently and incredibly shameful. And what I want you to see is in this exchange that Jesus, yes, takes our guilt and he takes our shame. He takes upon himself The shame that you and I have mounted up because of our guilt for sin. He becomes that. He embodies that. He takes that upon his head for us. So we don't leave the cross as Christians thinking simply, I'm still a horrible person, but at least God thinks I'm innocent. No, we leave knowing that God sees us not as horribly people who are innocent, but God has given us a new identity in Christ. That he not only has declared us innocent, he has declared us clean. He has washed us and renewed us white as snow. So we put the guilt that plagues us on the head of Jesus, but we must not forget to put the shame that weighs us down on the head of Christ. Because we see here, that second weight that he bore on our behalf, the cross of shame. Now you would think, after all of this, somebody would finally have pity upon Jesus. Somebody would would finally think, okay, enough's enough. I want to show you the third weight, because enough is not enough. And thirdly, we see in verses 39 to 44, the curse of man. The soldiers are done, but now everybody else joins their voices to mock Jesus. We read in the Old Testament, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul in Galatians 3 takes that idea and applies it to the cross. Jesus cursed by hanging on a tree. And here, God's curse is shown to us in man's curse. How everyone that walks by Jesus mocks him and curses him. Three different groups, we'll hit these quickly, are going by Jesus as he's on the cross. First, verses 39 and 40, the people derided him. Verse 39, 
And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. To deride is to literally hurl insults at him. It comes from the Greek word for blaspheme. Matthew's so good with the irony here. Jesus has been accused in the Jewish court of blasphemy, and now they are blaspheming him. They're hurling reproaches at him. Then they're, they're symbolizing this by wagging their heads at him. A direct fulfillment of Psalm 22, where David prays, anticipating the cross of Jesus, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Now look particularly at their words to Jesus. They say, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Here's this constant refrain. Jesus, if you're really God, save yourself. But then they say, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. This is not the first time we've heard someone say to Jesus, if you are the Son of God. Do you remember who said this to him before? It's Satan. When the devil came to tempt Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, he said to him, if you are the Son of God. And remember what the temptation he offered Jesus was. Save yourself. Bow before me and you get everything. Or follow God's plan and go to the cross and die for your people. Satan offers Jesus to get out of the suffering, to save himself. And not follow the plan of his father. It's the same temptation here. Just save yourself, Jesus. If you really are who you say you are, you will come down and save yourself. And the implication, of course, is if you save yourself, you're not saving your people. This idea of him rebuilding the temple in three days, they just just don't have ears to hear. He's going to when he rises from the dead uh, in three days rebuild the temple. So the people are deriding him. They're mocking him. They're embodying the words of Satan to tempt him. And then secondly, we see the priest here, and the priests are mocking him. Now we get the chief priest plus the scribes plus the elders. This is the whole group. This is all the leaders. This is the full Sanhedrin. This is everybody involved. And they are coming and they are mocking Jesus. They are joining voices with the soldiers to mock him. And in particular, look what they say. He saved others. He cannot save himself. They see him hanging on the cross and they assume he can't do anything about it. They assume he's helpless. They assume he's weak. They assume if anyone had the power of the divine, they would get off that cross immediately. The fact that Jesus remains hanging there means that he cannot save himself. In mockery, they say he saved others. What do they mean by that? They don't know what they mean by that. They're just picking up his words. What do those words mean? That means that he saves his people from their sins. The, the de- his suffering and death are the very means by which he saves people. The irony is that by not saving himself, he in fact does save others. They have the math equation all backwards. 
by remaining on the cross. He doesn't show that he's weak and can do nothing. He remains on the cross to show that he is strong and can do everything. Save his people from their sins. They go on. He is the king of the Jews. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. You think that's true? (laughs) They haven't believed in him up to this point. You think I'm coming off the cross? They will believe in him? I don't think so. And then they, they get to the real heart of the matter. They say, verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. He is, they are calling into question the very thing that Jesus is telling you and me to do. The very application of the entire book of Matthew for us is trust God. And they want to show us that Jesus himself trusts God and God leaves him. And God abandons him. And there he is, hanging on the cross, trusting God, and God does nothing. They even quote, unknowingly I think, they even quote Psalm 22 again. The mockers say of King David in Psalm 22, he trusts in the Lord, let him, the Lord, deliver him, the king. Let the Lord rescue the king, for the Lord delights in the king. If you delight in somebody and you have the power to rescue them, you will rescue them. But if Jesus thinks God delights in him, but God does not rescue him, they are saying to Jesus, he left you. He abandoned you. You call yourself the son of God. You're hanging on the cross. Clearly, you're not his son. They mock him. They deride him. And then as if to add insult to injury, the two robbers on each side join in with a third verb. Verse 44, they reviled him in the same way. (laughs) The guys who are actually guilty revile the innocent one. Matthew is showing us brutally and slowly the suffering of Jesus. And here's what you need to know about the suffering of Jesus. Here's our big $10,000 word this morning. The suffering of Jesus is vicarious. Vicarious means it's in our place. Vicarious means it's in our stead. Vicarious means, as 1 Peter says, the righteous for the unrighteous. Or as we sang in the hymn, in my place, condemned he stood. This isn't just random suffering. This isn't pointless suffering. This is vicarious suffering. It's on our behalf. Listen to these famous verses from Isaiah 53. And listen to them in light of what Jesus is doing in Matthew 27. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He lays on him the crown of thorns. He lays on him the cross of shame, He lays on him the curse of man. He lays it on him and he bears it all away. 
The author, Tim O'Brien, has written a novel entitled The Things They Carried. It's a novel about soldiers who fought in the Vietnam War. The novel is written about this, uh, these soldiers, this squad, and it's written through the, the lens of the things they carried with them. So it starts with uh, some love letters from a girlfriend in the guy's bag. Right, and his kind of, he reads the letters and sort of tells his story through that. It, it tells about trinkets that people bring from home. It tells about uh, sort of uh, good food the soldiers have snuck with them in the bags. It speaks of the burden of everything they carry with them. And it moves from the physical stuff they carry to the emotional stuff they carry, the, the religious stuff they carry. It moves to the burdens uh, of their fear of going to war. It moves to, the, to the, their hopes and their dreams uh, and their fear and their, their anxiousness. And it tells the, the story of their battle through the things that they carry. And I wonder sometimes, when I stand at the door and watch you all pull in and come to church uh, in the parking lot and, and you walk in and, and you're carrying stuff with you, right? I mean, you're carrying physical things. Most of you carry a Bible, right? Some of you kids carry toys, right? You carry books or coloring stuff. Some of you think it's cold in here, so you carry an extra blanket, right? Or a sweater, But there's other stuff you carry. You carry guilt with you. Some of you even carry the shame of that guilt with you. And you carry your scars with you. You carry the way that you've hurt others, and you carry the way that others have hurt you. And and in the, the novel of the Vietnam War, there's not much hope of the stuff that we carry. The author says that the soldiers had a silent awe for the terrible power of the things they carried. They keep holding on to it. The terrible, terrible, terrifying power of what they carried. And I'm asking you, and I'm inviting you this morning, to put down what you're carrying. Don't just put it down. Put it upon the head of Jesus. He did not suffer and die in vain. He suffered and died as the scapegoat to have upon his head every sin you've committed. And all the shame that you feel that go with every one of those sins. He bore them all. Your loving Father placed upon the head of His beloved Son. All of it. And He bears it away. So why are you still carrying it? It's on His head. It's gone. God doesn't see it. God doesn't count it. Why do you? Let go of that guilt and that shame. Let go of those hurts. Be forgiven. Forgive others. Our Savior, our scapegoat, is sufficient as He bears it all away. So none of it is left for you and me. Trust Christ today. Leave your burdens on Him. For instead of saving Himself, He saved you. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Lord, You have placed upon Him the iniquity of us all. It is with joy, with 
sorrow and yet joy that we read these texts and we see the scapegoat of God walking out of the camp and into the wilderness and bearing it all away. Lord, give us faith today to believe that's true. Give us faith today to release and to let go upon his head. Give us faith to believe that the guilt is really atoned for. Give us faith to believe that the shame really is cleansed. Give us faith to live as free, peaceful, rejoicing sons and daughters for whom you have made and accomplished the ultimate atonement. Grant us eyes to see and hearts that believe, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with my Jesus, I Love Thee, hymn 496.